And good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. I am so ready to be back in Matthew. I planned to be, but I couldn't do it. Not yet. We got scandal mongered, didn't we? And we brought it into the light like Scripture commands, but we've not had anyone repent yet. In fact, so far, each false witness has refused to even participate in the biblically mandated process. In one case, we've already done what Scripture requires when a factious man is exposed, rebuked, and unrepentant. We're now pursuing reconciliation in the other situation, but at that time it seems at this time it seems quite hopeless, to be honest with you. And my heart is too heavy to go back to our normal pattern just yet. There's one more aspect of shepherding that I feel needs to be covered. David, Josh, and especially I've been put in the awkward position of having to defend ourselves. Man, I hate that. We've hated every moment of it. Uh, For lack of a better word, it feels icky. But icky or not, you've got to ask, is it right? And if it's right, if it isn't right, we shouldn't do it. But if it is right, then we must do it. Correct? The good news is that God has not left us rudderless. We see a very similar scenario play itself out in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Paul dealt with it straightforwardly and publicly. We're going to look at how Paul handled it this morning. Unfortunately, y'all ain't getting some of the extras extras that I usually provide for you on Sunday mornings. There are no handouts, I'm sure you've noticed. The points of the sermon are not alliterated. In fact, there are no points. This is a completely pointless sermon. Uh, Or more accurately, there's just one point. There is a place for a minister to defend himself, but it must come from the right heart. Has to. And that's the point that I'll be belaboring this morning. It starts with a minister seeing himself rightly. Have you you ever heard the the saying, you can't judge a book by its cover? Sure we have, haven't we? That proves itself true so many times in so many ways, but it's certainly true of ministers of our Lord Jesus. Like the kingdom of heaven buried in the dirt in the parable that Jesus told, although it was in the dirt, the treasure was so precious that the man sold everything to buy it. Remember that? The container doesn't always or even usually reflect the value of its contents. And that that contrast is the heart of 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. Paul writes, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels 
so that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Here we see the contrast between the shining knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus and the feeble, imperfect, fragile, ugly containers by which the glorious gospel is carried and delivered to people. When Paul founded the church at Corinth, there was no way he could have known how badly that they'd break his heart. First, they broke his heart by dragging many of their old sinful ways into their Christian lives. That's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He pointed out numerous sins that were characteristic of their pre-Christian life that they had dragged dragged with them into the church. And he called them to repentance. Then, perhaps even worse still, in came, and I quote Paul here, hypocritical liars espousing doctrines of demons. That's what he called them. That's not nice, is it? That's heavy-handed. It's how Paul wrote. It's what Paul did. Direct and straightforward. He addressed things. In other words, false teachers teaching a false and damning gospel. When these false teachers came to town, they first had to gain prominence. They had to become believable. They had to rise to the place where they were recognized as teachers. And in order to do that, they had to destroy people's confidence in their pastor, Paul. They assaulted Paul relentlessly for months. They attacked him. They undermined his credibility, his integrity, his apostleship, and his message. Paul was devastated. So devastated that he went to Corinth and tried to straighten things out and call them back to himself. He had been writing, but he couldn't do this anymore. I'm going to go and I'm going to face this. I'm going going to come and see these people. This church is so dear to me. I've got to come. Not for his own sake, but for the sake of the truth. These people are going to be led astray to false practices and false ideas. And I've got to go and I've got to fix this. But when he showed up, a man in the congregation apparently stood up and blasted Paul to his face. Nobody came to Paul's defense. Paul left Corinth with an absolutely shattered heart. He then sent Titus there with another letter. It's a letter that's not included in the New Testament. It's alluded to in 2 Corinthians. But the basic message was this, don't abandon me because if you do, you're going to abandon the truth. And Titus returned with a good report. The people had responded to that letter. But Paul knew that false teachers were still there. And he feared for the future because people are fickle. Man, you can get people's heads on straight when you're with them and you're in front of them. But then when they get around the wrong people again, they can be led astray again that quick. It's back and forth. And one of the most important things you've got to keep as a pastor is the unity. It's actually the job. Turn, turn real quickly to keep, keep your finger here. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians mainly. But turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. What is our job as elders?
He gave some, Ephesians 4.11, as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith. When we see that we aren't unified, we've got to address that. That's important. Sometimes you have to leave the book of Matthew to address things head on and straightforward. When the unity of the church is upset, you have no choice because you have to do things that the Bible requires you to do that the church has to understand what, they, what you're supposed to do and why you're doing it. Amen? For the unity until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, here's what we're aiming for, that people are no longer children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. When we see people doing those sorts of things... Carrying people with winds of doctrine, trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming. We have to deal with it because people can be moved by it. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together. Guys, we, when, when things are pulling at our people that are in a covenant community together and we've got people that are sowing division and it's pulling people away, no, we want to be fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. God's placed you here. We need you. We need your gifts. We can't have you led astray. That's the job of elders, right? That's, right? that's what it's telling us we're supposed to be doing. Because we need being fitted, held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes growth of the body, that you're part of a body. And if you're actually part of that body, we don't want you severed. We don't want you cut off. And that's why that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. That's the purpose is they were tearing at the unity of the Corinthian church. He had it kind of fixed a little bit, but they still had all these false things they had said about Paul, and you still had these factions that were existing within the church, and he wanted to try to deal with it. He had to get his beloved disciples away from these factious people and win their hearts back. And to do so, he had to defend himself. He had to. This epistle had to be difficult for Paul to write. Well, why? Because he had to defend himself. And making it start harder still, he knew he was nothing. That's the hardest part. Is when you have to defend yourself, but you know you're nothing. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, this is Paul's estimation of himself and of all ministers. What, what there is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. So he knows he's nothing. He's not anything. But he is being used by God, and he is speaking the truth, and he's God's vessel for now. It's what God's using, and he doesn't want to carry it away to something else. So he's put in this position where I know what I'm teaching and preaching is right, but I'm nothing, but they're going to teach and preach things that are wrong, and if you believe them, you'll follow them, and you'll believe and follow their wrongness. Man, that's an awkward position to be put in, isn't it? 
It's where they put him. So Paul had to defend himself as a teacher of the truth, as an apostle of Christ, as a messenger of the living God, and yet he knew himself to be nothing. And walking that fine line is what 2 Corinthians 4, 5-7 through 7 is all about. The false teachers attacked Paul in every way imaginable. You've got your Bibles handy. We're going to do a, a, a walk through, first, uh, through 2 Corinthians to look at him answering some of these many attacks that came at him. But the false teachers attacked Paul in every way imaginable. And he directly answers everything they say about his message and character. He answers everything they say. Paul, that's a bit thin-skinned of you, isn't it? No. No, because of the motive. Why is he doing it? He knows who he is, but he knows what they need. So everything they say about his message and character, he answers it in 2 Corinthians. The false teacher said Paul was a hypocrite and a wicked man. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 2. He answers that. He says, no, we've renounced the things hidden because of shame. We're not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. But by the manifestation of the truth, we're commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Look, he's saying, look, you know who we are. You know our character. You know we're not walking in craftiness. You know we're not adulterating or selling, doing this for our own benefit or our own profit. I commend, our, I commend us to your consciences. You know us what Paul says. The false teachers accused Paul of ministering in the power of his flesh and insincerity. He responds in 2 Corinthians 1.12. Listen to what he says. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. You say, wow, Paul, that sounds rather arrogant. You're saying that you just can't see that you're wrong in anything? That's exactly what Paul said. He's saying, I've walked in the integrity of my heart. I, 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 can, I can find nothing against myself. Now, I'm not by this acquitted. It's the Lord that judges me. It's deeper than that. I, I know that there might be something there, but I can't see anything. And my conscience is clear. He pleads with them. If I'm wrong, show me. He says, no, in, uh, instead... In holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially towards you. You know what we've done towards you. That's what he said. We've, I've labored with you people. You know who I am. He's pleading with them. They accused him of seeking personal glory, to which he has responded in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves just as slaves for Jesus' sake. They said he didn't even deserve to be listed among the apostles, that he was a poor teacher, to which he responded in 2 Corinthians 11, 5 through 6. Turn over there. 2 Corinthians 11, 5 through 6. says, For I consider myself not to be the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Was Paul a humble man? He was. But he got put in the position where he has to defend himself. And he actually says some things that you, you read them and it hits you funny. I'm not, I'm not inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, 
yet I'm not so in knowledge. He might, so they, they also said, man, he, he's a bad preacher. He says, I might be, but I know what I'm talking about. That, that's, honest, that's what he's saying right here. You, you see it? He says, even if I am unskilled in speech, I'm not in knowledge. I might be a bad teacher, but what I'm teaching is true. Test what I'm saying in light of Scripture. You're not like me if you want to. You think I'm a terrible preacher, terrible teacher, bad communicator. But I know what I'm talking about. In fact, in every way, we've made this evident to you in all things. He's saying, you've heard me teach for a long, long time. Do I stay in the book or not? That's what he's saying. Turn also to 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. He's answering the same thing. Talking about having to defend himself. Listen to what he says. I've become foolish, but you yourselves compelled me. He's talking about in context, how did he become foolish? By having to defend himself. He feels like a fool having to defend himself, but he has no choice because they made him do it. That's what he's saying. Actually, I should have been commended by you. You all should have been bragging on me. You should have been praising me. You should have been thankful for me. That's what he's saying. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. You see the, see the line he's dancing? Like he, I'm, he's having to defend himself and then say, I'm nobody. I, I'm, I'm, I've done as much good for the kingdom as anybody, but I'm nobody. God's done whatever good I've done, but I'm nobody. I'm a bad teacher, but I know what I'm talking Like It's like self-deprecating, but hey, you know who I am? He's having to dance that line. That's a... That's a terrible line to dance. It ain't no fun. And then they went further and they attacked further than attacking his character. They went further than attacking his theology. They attacked him personally. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10:10. He says, for they say, this is what they're saying about him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. He quotes them. In other words, they said he was ugly and he was a bad preacher. Guys, that's really bad, isn't it? Because if you're handsome, even if you can't communicate, people can enjoy looking at you. And if you're ugly, but you're a good preacher, they can enjoy listening. But if you're ugly, and you can't communicate, whew, you ain't got much, do you? <laughs> Amen. They apparently, they apparently criticized him for his simple message of the cross. They said that he never used the wisdom of men, they, that he failed to weave in the great themes of philosophy. He failed to use any of the charm and charisma or persona that make communication effective. Though it was especially unkind, they attacked his personal blemishes and physical defects. Many commentators suggest that Paul was a crook-nosed hunchback with physical deformities. 
We know he was aged and scarring. Scars from being beat, whipped, all that he'd gone through. Whatever his shortcomings and looks were, and he was obviously aware of those. Whatever his limitations might have been in oratorical skills. Whatever he might not have had in charm. He was aware. He knew who he was. He knew. They said he didn't have the personal power it takes. He didn't have the persona. He didn't have the philosophical relevance. Why would, he, why would anybody listen to him or follow him? Man, I'm sure there's a better church. We might have to drive farther to get there, but we can go somewhere else. Can't stay there. I don't feel safe around him. Notice this. When they attacked his integrity, his theology, and his qualifications for ministry, his doctrine, and his actions, he defended himself. That's when he defended himself. He knew he couldn't minister if people lost confidence in those things. He wasn't qualified if those things weren't right. But what do we see in our verses as his response when they attacked his person, his personality, his giftedness? He offered no defense. Back to our text in 2 Corinthians 4, 5-6. through 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. He's the one that has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That what I have, what I'm giving to you, God's given what I've got. It's not from me, it's from Him. Right? That's what He's saying. He gave us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But He did give it to us and we've got it. And we have, look at verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not from ourselves. What's he say when they attack him personally? His speaking ability, his personal presence. He says, what do you want out of a clay pot? He turned the argument back on them. He said, you're right, I agree about my weaknesses. Paul's like, I, I know all about my inabilities. I'm not going to pick a fight on that. I'm not here to defend myself in that arena. Like all noble ministers, he was being put in a very embarrassing position. He was being criticized by people who were much more sinful and weak than he was. Guilty, much more so, of everything they accused him of than he was. And obviously so. And there he is, on his heels. Because too many people entertained the accusations. And he's terrified of losing their hearts. So he found himself in a hard, painful place of having to defend himself even though he knew he was nothing. But at the same time, he knew the new covenant was everything. The unity of the church was everything. Keeping people together in the body, loving one another, which you must... You're not a Christian. How do you know you pass from death into life? Because you love the brethren. And you got people trying to pull you against each other. Pull you away. Man, I love you so much I never want to see you again. That's not love. Frail. Imperfect. And common though he was, he agreed with their assessments about who he was. I am ugly. 
Look at this brow. Come on, see us. I'm not the snazziest of communicators. I can't pronounce the Greek very well. Y'all don't know the difference with Michael knows. Can't do this, can't do that. I agree. Never ceased to be a wonder to Paul that God would have used, put such a priceless treasure in such a worthless clay pot. He was dirt baked hard. And that's what an earthen vessel is, and Paul knew it. Preachers and ministers are men. That's all. And men are not perfect. There's no hope of perfection in ministry. Guys, don't be consumers. Be covenant members of your church. You're going to leave one imperfect pastor and you're going to go to another church, you're going to find another imperfect pastor. But you know what it's about? It's about loving the people. The family of God, these people that you love with their weaknesses, their imperfections, and loving them through it as they love you through yours. And anybody that's trying to tear away from that is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Care how much Bible scripture they can quote. Because we don't know we pass from death into life because we know how much Bible scripture we can quote. We know we pass from death into life but how we love the brethren. If God couldn't use poor instruments and feeble voices, He wouldn't make any music, would He? Moses was a man with a stutter and a quick temper. Yet he was the man that God chose to deliver Israel from Egypt, wasn't he? He was the man that God sent to com- that God had commune with him to receive the law itself. David was guilty of adultery, conspiracy, and murder, but he repented and became a man after God's own heart. And the number one songwriter in all of history. Elijah ran from Jezebel asking for God to just let him die. But that same Elijah defied Ahab and all of the prophets of Baal, didn't he? Peter was impulsive. James and John argued over who was going to be on the right hand and on the left. And the Bible is filled with people that are just an absolute train wreck. You know it? Except for that Jesus guy. Except for that Jesus guy. We don't preach ourselves. But Christ Jesus. So it was with Paul. He suffered so much at the hands of these Corinthians who he loved so dearly. But his response was 2 Corinthians 15, I mean 12, 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? It didn't matter to him. You can do what you want. I'm not going anywhere. I'll love you till I die. I loved what Woody said after his ordination. I want to die here. I do too. Can't think of people I'd rather die with. And yet, as assaulted as Paul was, he knew any evil he suffered, he deserved. And any comfort he received was grace. His only defense was, you're right, you're right, I am weak, I know. He doesn't argue with their accusations of weakness. Rather, he affirms them. Yet they're not defects. They're credentials of his authentic apostleship. This little section in 
2 Corinthians 4 is a magnificent tribute to a humble man. He defends himself not on the basis of human skill or achievement. He just agrees and makes this magnificent comparison. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness... There's a purpose that God... There's a reason God puts it in, puts the treasure in unimpressive men. There's a reason for it. Notice the so that in your text. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. That's why God puts priceless treasure in clay pots so that no one ever has to ask where the power comes from. You ever hear people say, well, what if so-and-so got saved? What if Kanye... Man, I wish Kanye West would get saved. Man, that'd change the world. Or, or Elon Musk, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Bill Nye the science guy. I don't know, whoever you want to throw out there. Somebody in the public eye. Oh, man, I wish they would get saved. So what if they did? The power is not in the container, but it's the treasure, and it can be in any container. Is it true? Are people pointing you to the truth? Their speech may be contemptible, but is their knowledge accurate in the Word of God? God puts that knowledge. He shines it. And the light shines out of the darkness. He puts it in clay pots. A clay pot is baked dirt. How inexpensive is dirt? You can just go rake it up, can't you? It's common, breakable, replaceable, and essentially valueless. And if you, if you drop a clay pot and you break it, it ain't no big deal. A clay pot is a clay pot. It's without value, but it is useful. In ancient times, clay pots were used for many things. In the home, they were used for garbage and waste to carry out unmentionables. And when I say unmentionables, I think you know what I'm talking about. That's what these clay pots were. These earthen vessels, that's what they were typically used for. You're going to get rid of your excrement. That's what they're designed for. Paul uses the same word here. And uh, he uses it in 2 Timothy 220 says, In a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, a clay pot, some to honor and some to dishonor. The clay pot was a vessel to dishonor. It was a dishonorable vessel. It was gross. Then in verse 21 he says that if you want to use the earthen vessel for an honorable cause, then you've got to cleanse it first. You think? <laughs> yep, you do. If you're going to now use it, you ain't going to cook in it unless you wash it real good. <laughs> you know? But it's still a clay pot. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm a clay pot, but I've been cleansed. I'm not impressive, but I've been cleansed. I'm clean. And God cleaned me up. I'm still a clay pot. And He decided to put a treasure in me. And if you leave me, you're not only leaving me, you're leaving the treasure. That's what He's saying. So He defended Himself. Because He didn't want them... Not, not, not to lose Him. It's not about that. He doesn't care. He didn't defend himself so that they won't be his anymore. Or there'll be less numbers on the membership roll. 
whether there'll be less giving in the church. No, no, no. He wants them to have the treasure. And he knows what he's teaching and preaching is correct. And he's not sure where they'll go or what will happen or how they'll be cared for if they go somewhere else. So he wants to keep their hearts. So he has to defend himself. We're common containers for the most humble and dirty uses, not even fit to be brought into the public. That's how it is in the ministry. Our only value is as containers. It's the treasure that we bring that has value. And that's why the Lord didn't choose many mighty or noble. He's chosen the humble and the base and the common. That's the essence of spiritual service. They accused Paul. You're weak. You're unimpressive. You're not a good communicator. You're plain. You're common. You're not clever. You're not philosophical. You're not culturally sensitive. And his response is, I know, I know, I know. I'm just a pop. But I've got a treasure. I've got a treasure. God's still doing it that way. He's passing over the elite. He's still passing by the hard-hearted, the non-listening, proud intellectuals sitting in their ivory towers and universities and seminaries and bishoprics on their positions of authority and whatever church they're in. But God's finding the humble who will carry the treasure of saving truth. How's that work? Because we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. We're not the message. If our church grows, it will not be because of mine, David's, or Josh's abilities. Not because we give the people what they want in sermons as far as content or length. Or because we get better technology or better facilities. God doesn't need any of those things. You're not going to be getting a survey. Do you think the sermons are too long or too short? We don't care. If we want to be used by God, we must get ourselves out of it. Learn to see yourself as a garbage pail. Or in the words of Peter, clothe yourself in in humility. It's not you. It's not your personality. It's the Word of God. And God doesn't need great people, fancy people, or famous people. The people are not the power. The power is the message. The power is in the transformed lives. Those who bear the image of Christ. That the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not from ourselves. So in 1 Corinthians 2, this is the other Corinthians, the first time he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith, once again, I so that, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Man, he kept beating that same drum, didn't he? Amen. Second Corinthians 12, 7-10, he talks about the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he's received. For this reason, to keep him from exalting himself, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet to keep him from exalting himself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
What, what is this thorn? Well, I think it's in verse 10. Therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God, He won't let you go. Hey, you're serving God. You will not go controversy free. You won't go without insults. You won't go without put-downs. You won't go without scandal mongers. He lets you keep them to keep you humble. Realize your great need to remind you of who you are. To make you wrestle with how you've got to deal with it and keep pointing people to Jesus. And people say, how does he keep doing this as weak and awful as he is? Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. And the power's not in me, it's in my message. And he keeps reminding you of that again and again. And it's a grace. It's not even a... It's a kindness of our Lord. Pray for your underwhelmingly gifted pastors. Pray that God uses us to shepherd and build up His church in love. If the pastor is unimpressive, then praise God for that fact. Because then who's going to get out of the glory? Hey, you don't need to leave. You won't find a less impressive pastor anywhere. Don't leave here. You'll find somebody more impressive and he might get some of the glory. Stay here with us. With these clay pot pastors. When God hits a straight shot with a crooked stick, people know God did it because there's no way that the pastor had anything to do with it. We have one thing going for us. We know what we are, and we're not impressed. A.T. Robertson said this. He said, There always have been men in the world so clever that God could make no use of them. They could never do His work. They were so lost in admiration of their own. God's work has never depended on them. And it doesn't depend on them now. The power is not the product of human genius or cleverness or technique or ingenuity. The power of the gospel is the gospel. We ministers are weak, common, frail, breakable, dishonorable, disposable clay pots. We're not above just being vessels used for taking out the garbage. But instead, we're bringing the glory of God to our people. The amazing thing is that such weakness doesn't prove fatal to the gospel because the gospel is not of us. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for, uh, for this time that we've had. But it's been a purifying time. It's been a time of repentance. But it's been a time we believe that it will make us stronger and conform us more to your image. Lord, we uh, come to you grateful for the message that we have, that we are sinners, that we'll never be good enough, but that we can love all each other so much, even though we're not good enough, because we're forgiven in Christ Jesus that Christ has borne the wrath of God on our behalf, that we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and if that's true, we know we're not there yet, that we can be patient with one another, long-suffering, enduring with one another through weaknesses, through sin, as we show repentant hearts and love toward one another in the midst of difficulties and disagreements and hardship. Lord, that you would build us up together in unity, that you would not let us be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, the trickery of men and deceitful scheming, but God, that we would be built up in love and strengthened by what every joint supplies. 
Lord, build your church. We could never do it, but we trust you to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.